Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we're talking about something I've been wondering about for a long time, and that's the effect of outdoor recreation on plant communities. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm not saying outdoor recreation in any way, shape, or form is bad. I just want to understand how it affects plant communities, because I've seen so many examples of even very botanically-minded people being very cavalier about where they walk off trail, how they go see the species of concern, and all of the, I guess, collateral damage that happens with every footstep along the way. Now extend that out to things like ATVs or off-roading vehicles, and you could see where this might have some pretty considerable effects on plant communities that we need to consider. Joining us to talk about this is Trini Chisholm, who recently completed her master's work exploring this topic and more up at Castle Provincial Park in Alberta, Canada. Trini's work is really important, and it just goes to show you that getting as many people in the room can lead to better and more sustainable outdoor recreation practices. I'm going to let her give you all of the details on that, but I do want to remind you that my book is currently 30% off over at mango.bz, so go check out the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, where you can find a link to get a discount on my book as well as all of the other titles at Mango Publishing. But until then, on with the show. Without further ado, Here's my conversation with Trini Chisholm. I hope you enjoy. All right, Trini Chisholm, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you about this topic today because it's something I've been wondering about for a long time. But let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Okay, well, thank you, Matt, for having me on the show. Um, my name's Trini, and um, yeah, I guess I started out just as sort of a young naturalist, um, just being interested in, we had this big uh, pussy willow tree in our backyard, and I was always just fascinated with trees and the plants that we had in our backyard, um, and just gardening with my grandma and my mom growing up it got me kind of interested in plants. Um, I guess I was kind of a late bloomer in terms of the academia world and getting interested in plants. I actually started out in sociology. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I took a little bit of a dive into uh, social work and found out that wasn't quite my thing. So I jumped back into the school and uh, checked out some biology. And uh, that's when I started doing my undergrad in biological science. So Nice. Yeah, sometimes those journeys take us down some different paths, but I feel like most of the time experiences that you have that tell you what you don't like are almost more important than the ones that tell you what you do like. Definitely. Yeah. And so once I started my undergrad, I, um, it took a bit for me to want to get into the plants, but probably in about my third or fourth year, I had to take field botany and that's sort of where my passion for plants started. Um, it was with Jenny Burke and She was just an amazing instructor and just got me really interested in wanting to ID plants and get out into the field and and see what we have out in our own coolies. So excellent. And so really, this has been, at least in the academic sense, a very plant focused journey from that point on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. From there, I um, I got uh, introduced to Dr. Bain, who's the UofL herbarium curator. from Jenny Burke, she recommended me to go work with him as a research assistant. And so what he was doing was a castle 
inventory project. So a provincial park that's out here in Alberta. Um, and he was looking at basically just seeing what's out there. Mm. Um, it's a newly established park. Um, it was established in 2017. Um, and so there just hasn't been any plant studies done out there for a long time. So we wanted to know what was out there, um, if there's any particular areas that we need to conserve, um, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, that's where I started my, I guess, journey um, out in Castle there. <laughs> wow. It's not every day uh, a new park is created and you get to be a part of that. That's really different, I think, from most perspectives we get on this show. And so, you know, there's a lot of ways you can kind of take your chunk and run with it in terms of botany. But how did you kind of go down the road, uh, the road of like plant communities, that sort of stuff? What took you to where your research ended up? Yeah, so I worked with uh, Dr. Bain for two years and we were just, like I said, we were just identifying what was out there. Um, and from that, we actually had a project come um, from, I guess it was funded mostly by Alberta Conservation Association. Um, and we had a new professor coming to the University of Lethbridge, Dr. Jenny McCune, who is my supervisor. Um, and they asked if she wanted to do this project and I wanted to join in with this project because I knew um, quite a bit about the flora that was out in Castle already. So I thought it was a perfect match. Um, and yeah, we started taking a look at the plant communities out in Castle and sort of assessing um, the impacts that the recreational trails have out there. Nice. And so when we talk about Castle Provincial Park, what kind of, I guess, big picture habitat are we looking at? Is it like boreal? Is it Rocky Mountain? I mean, I'm arguably very unfamiliar with that area. And, and I, I'm sure many of my listeners will be, you know, it'll be a novel place as well. Yeah, absolutely. Castle Parks is in southern Alberta. And uh, it's part of the Rocky Mountain Range that it extends from Alberta down into the States. Um, so it's this little tiny pocket, uh, about 105,000 hectares large, and um, it's just north of Waterton Lakes National Park. And so we have this combination of the Castle Provincial Park as well as the Castle Wildland Provincial Park that sort of encompasses this entire area. Hmm. Um, and so you can see anything from, you know, the alpine to subalpine, um, coniferous forests, grasslands, meadows, um, quite a large diversity of ecosystems that we have out in Castle. Wow, that's really special. I can see why someone would want to protect such a swath of habitat types and all the biodiversity that comes with it. And, you know, it's easy to come from an area that doesn't experience winters quite like Alberta does, but I mm -hmm. think it's also easy then to think about, well, there's snow on the ground for most of the year. There's not much going on, but <laughs> I think you would, and many of your colleagues would beg to differ. There's a lot of biodiversity in that region. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a, a sweet little uh, biodiversity hotspot that we have here in Alberta. So um, yes, we have a lot of rare plants, but if you go out in Castle or Waterton area, those rare plants seem to be pretty common um, hmm. wherever you go. So yeah, it's quite a unique little area. I love those magic spots where you're like, I've never seen this before. You turn the corner and there's a whole hillside of something mm -hmm. going on. You're like, oh, yeah. I can't <laughs> comprehend this. <laughs> That's cool. And so, you know, you had this really wonderful opportunity to work out there. How did recreation sort of factor into your life? Because like myself, you know, it took a while to kind of get my head wrapped around that you can actually love something to death. It's easy to understand how a mine or f logging could affect biodiversity. But recreation, especially outdoor recreation, is always pitched as a wonderful green activity but it, it does have an impact. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of my time growing up going camping and going hiking with my family. And it wasn't really, I guess, something that you would really think about firsthand. Um, the fact that walking on these trails could potentially be impacting a lot of the vegetation that's uh, growing alongside it. Um, and so especially in Castle, it's actually a, a pretty popular area for um, OHV or off-highway vehicle uh, recreational use out there. Mm. And so um, when the park was established, there was a lot of sort of uh, contemplation, I guess, in terms of the trails that were out there, um, whether they should remain in place um, or whether they should be shut down. So there's a lot of protests from a lot of people um, that just love the outdoors mm. um, for different reasons, of course. But of course, we just have to consider that idea of having a sustainable um, sort of natural area that we can enjoy nature, but also be able to enjoy uh, recreational use too. So Right, right. Yeah, it always sucks when you see people doing damaging things in parks or natural areas because you know they went there for a reason it's an escape it's a beautiful place why would you want to damage that but then there's all the unintended Mm -hmm. consequences of not so obvious activities like recreation uh atvs that sort of thing and like i mean i i grew up in the country i i loved atving but oh boy (laughs) the thought of the the massacre of vegetation that can happen if you take the wrong turn but I, I could see that being kind of a loaded almost quagmire to walk into as a grad student to be like, okay, there's protests. There's a lot of passion on both sides of this argument. You know, did you have to sort of navigate the sociopolitical side of things to even start doing the science? Um, I definitely had a lot of family and friends be like, Oh, you're doing what? <laughs> and you know, like a lot of them are very big OHV users. Mm. And so they're like, what are you trying to do? Like, there's only so many kilometers of trails that we can go up and down. Um, so a lot of it was just, yeah, yeah I guess just understanding um, the parties involved yeah. and uh, and being able to sort of, yeah, I guess maneuver through that that sort of landscape, I guess, of, of people, you know, so in love with the area for OHV purposes, but mm. also people in love with the area for, you know, conservation of the plants or conservation of the animals that are out there too. Wow. Well, I mean, my hat's off to you for, for diving in and taking on, you know, these, these difficult tasks. And, you know, uh, again, I don't want to fault anyone for enjoying the outdoors, but I, I think the key to what you said there is sustainability. And so when you're thinking about trails that already exist and the way to set up new trails in a new park, how, how did you start to put together a project that, you know, really kind of gets at the core of how is this affecting the plants? Because really the plants are holding the soil. They're setting the foundation for the ecosystems that are there. Where did you start to kind of figure out where you fit into that <laughs> big quagmire? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it started out with um, just thinking about how we were going to go about um, assessing this. And um, so it started off with basically seeing, all right, what's the trail system? What is it like? What do we have out there? Mm. Uh, what kind of trails are present out there? And unfortunately, we weren't able to get like the data that we wanted. Um, I guess in terms of the trail data that we got, we were comparing uh, the widths of the different trails. So we were using footpaths, OHV trails, and roads as sort of our our trail types. Um, And from there, we were just going, um, setting out a transect that was perpendicular to these different trails um, that were, I guess, randomly selected throughout the entire area of the park. Um, so we were incorporating the different watersheds as well. Oh. Um, and also making sure that we were hitting uh, different vegetation types too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so once we got to the these areas, we would lay, lay out a transect, um, and along that 11-meter transect, we would set out one-by-one-meter quadrats. And, and so within these quadrats, we would um, assess basically, all right, what do we have there? How many species do we have? Um, and in what abundances do we have these species going from zero meters, two meters, five meters, and 10 meters away from the trail? Wow. So basically wanting to assess the extent of that um, impact that these trails had. Fantastic. I mean, that is very thorough. And for those that haven't had the honor and privilege to do that kind of work, it's not easy. It's a lot. You know, you think a meter by meter transect is, or a quadrant is, you know, it's relatively small. But when you have an area that's biodiverse, even if it's not all that biodiverse, you got to know what's in there. And that's everything from seedlings to mature plants and all the spaces in between. And what I love about work like that is it, it, you're just out there, right? And so, you know, mm-hmm. you're seeing amazing things not only in your quadrants across your transects, but just by being out in that environment for that long, oftentimes in small numbers of people, you probably see some amazing stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you'd be surprised at how many species you can find in a single one by one meter quadrat. I think <laughs> one of our our most busiest quadrats, we had about, what was it, 29 species. Dang. So and yeah they're like you say they're very small uh there's lots of them and you need to know what's there and so yeah. uh that's where i found my i guess love hate for sedges and grasses and <laughs> all that yeah. fun stuff and yeah. identifying those <laughs> so i guess from sort of the botanical naturalist sort of perspective that you came in with i mean how comfortable did you think you were with plant id and then how was that little uh, first dose of reality when you're like I've never seen this out of bloom before. Is this this sedge? Is it that great? You know, how how did how quickly did that learning curve really start to amp up? Yeah, I mean, I was like I say, I was very fortunate to be able to do that uh, inventory project mm. prior to my master's um, because I was able to go out into Castle for the first time, uh, botanically speaking, and identify the plants out there. Uh, with nice that course that I took. Um, so yeah, I guess. Starting off in my master's, I had to get a bit of a head start in terms of uh, knowing botanically what was out there. <laughs> um, but we still came across some interesting species that I had never seen before. And so it was really cool to take the time and identify those. That's awesome. And yes, yeah, talk about getting used to plants at different phases of development. I mean, until you have to do it, you don't appreciate how much a plant changes from seedling to, you know, a mature individual. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely need to know um, their growth patterns, what they look <laughs> like from from young seedlings up until mature growth, for sure. Nice. Now, one thing that really sticks out to me about your methodology is that you're going a distance away from trails. And it's easy to hear this on surface value and go, well, the trails where the damage is being done. But a trail is essentially a conduit for other types of disturbance oftentimes. And I'm sure That's that varies good. from system to system. But, you know, Talk to us a little bit about sort of that that conduit and how that effect can be spread surprisingly far from the actual trail system. Yeah, so I guess when you think about, you know, the trails that you're walking along, you don't really think about, um, I guess, your impact that you have on, you know, aside from you walking along that trail and making footprints along that trail. But um, a lot of the times you can have um, seeds that, attached to your clothing or attached to your boots or um, if you're on an OHV attaching to those vehicles and the mud that gathers on these vehicles too right Mm. so 
a lot of the times you have these seeds that are able to disperse farther into the vegetation. Um, and when you consider walking versus OHV trails or OHV traffic, you know, like that dispersal can spread quite a ways away from the trail itself. Hmm. Um, so a lot of the times that brings into the question of what kind of seeds are being brought in. Oh, wow. um, so we're, we're looking specifically, we were looking at, you know, the exotic species that were being brought in on, on these trails um, and how far they're extending out into the vegetation. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. And, and just what you said there of like, what types, I mean, is it, you know, those species that hang out in muddy depressions or is it species that just have light seeds that can carry a great distance and, yeah, you figure foot traffic can get a good distance and, and a ways in, but when you add vehicular traffic, the amount of distance that that effect can be felt probably increases exponentially, I would I would assume. Yeah, definitely. And so with some of the results that we found um, with our study, yes, yeah, of course, there's uh, seeds being brought in from uh, different trail use types. Um, but they're also being spread up in elevation too. So you can see this um, sort of facilitating effect of trails, bringing mm. these seeds up, not only out from the trails, but up in elevation too. So it becomes a concern, especially in you know such an important ecosystem um, or multitude of ecosystems that we have um, out wow. in the provincial parks or protected areas. Wow, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, the, the idea of sort of the latitude, not latitude, no, elevational gradient. Yeah. Just the, the speed at which mm -hmm. species could naturally do this versus what we can do if we're even unintentionally. Yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah. And you know, you outlined so nicely that this park or this provincial park is, is really set up to encompass a wide variety of habitat types that span elevations. And so when you think about the invasive suite, I'm sure there's many, many more species than we can sit and name today, but like, what were some of the worst <laughs> offenders you were seeing associated with different trail types? Um, yeah, a lot of the common, um, common exotic species that we came across were, you know, your typical common dandelion, Traxicum mm. officinal, um, Timothy grass, bloom pretends, uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of your bromes, so a lot of the grasses and, and your dandelion, um, but there are also some others, you know, like uh, Malika or, uh, or sorry, not Malika, Melilotus. Oh, yeah. Um, some of those species that you would see in certain areas. And a lot of those areas we found um, were oftentimes um, these large OHV trails. Yeah. Fascinating. And it's a, it's amazing. Like it's that when you think about biodiversity, unique species in an area and then you bring into the, the the species you just named, let alone probably all the others that come with it. it it's just this, it really brings to attention this homogenization effect that people have. And I, I hear a lot of arguments that are like, oh, well, at least something's growing there. Like, yeah, but it's all the same. It's not a variety of organisms. We know biodiversity matters. So we're actually reducing it and making it the same across vast areas of continents in the globe, really. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's funny because, um, I mean, I guess when you look at some of the the results that I had, you know, like, oh, it was species richness is increasing beside the trails. And, you know, somebody might be like, oh, well, that sounds like they're doing a great thing. But but what are those species, I guess, is the bigger question. Um, are they these exotic species that are coming in or are they still these 
um, native species that we consider or care about um, in terms of our, our native biodiversity that we have out in these protected areas. Yeah. And you got to think too about in that context, the timing at which you're doing these surveys. I mean, it might be great. You see this spike in diversity initially, but what happens when the next cohort of grad students go out there in 10, 15, 20 years? Are we going to see some of that diversity dropping them because of those new introductions are like, hey, it's free real estate. Yeah, exactly. And that's what that was, um, I guess, a really exciting thing uh, with my project is that there were no uh, plant community studies done out in Castle. So we mm. had sort of the baseline data that we have um, to now go out in the future and reassess these trails and see, you know, what has changed since we have taken the time to, 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 to look at the vegetation that's out there. Yeah. I mean, long-term data is what ecology thrives on. So kudos for yeah, setting, absolutely. setting that standard <laughs> for that region. But, you know, let's talk a little bit more about results in detail. So you're doing these transects, you're looking at biodiversity, both near on and, and a considerable distance from the trail. So what kind of patterns did you start to see and, and how did they change across trail type or elevation, that sort of thing? Yeah, so we found that, um, I guess, as you, the larger your trail is, you know, you go from narrow footpaths to sort of medium two-track OHV trails to larger um, access roads, mm. gravel roads. Um, and you see this sort of common trend where, of course, there's going to be increased species with um, beside the trail with increasing uh, width of your trail type. Um, but we also saw these interesting sort of interactions between um, the trail type and also the vegetation type that they were found in. So um, some of our, our results that we found were that the number of species and the exotic species, um, they were higher on OHV trails, but only in these shrubland or mixed vegetation types. Hmm. Um, and so we thought that was kind of interesting because, but it also, I guess, makes sense in the way that, you know, you have this sort of modeled sunlight environment or habitat Right. So it's also promoting um, natural dispersal, but also with the dispersal of trail users or the seeds being dispersed by trail users, um, it can extend farther into that vegetation type as opposed wow. to, say, a coniferous forest that's huh. fairly dense and not a lot of sunlight that's out there. Right. Yeah. <sighs> Man. <laughs> Really great illustration of why I love interaction effects, but also frustrating from a statistical point. But that's Definitely. another discussion. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I mean, that just goes to show you that like heterogeneity is is really a function of scale. And, and that can happen Absolutely, at small yeah. scales just as much as large. And yeah, the context of which you're trying to introduce species, if you have modeled sun, shade, sun, shade pockets and everything in between, a wider suite of species could potentially do well there, correct? Is that kind of where it, you landed on that? Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you could likely see more of your exotics um, able to, I guess, penetrate that vegetation farther um, and establish um, a lot farther than, say, a coniferous forest. Yeah. And so when you think about even just foot traffic, though, you know, there's still elements of like soil compaction, obviously, where people are walking, plants are getting trampled. And like I've my, my jaw hits the ground every time I go on a wildflower pilgrimage or, or festival is just how cavalier even plant-minded people can be about stomping to get to the cool thing and so when you add all these other layers of different kinds of recreation that might not be plant focused or even specifically nature focused in the context of I'm going out to see an owl or something like that <laughs> boy that mix gets pretty muddy pretty quickly no pun intended yeah yeah for sure and so I guess 
a lot of the, a lot of the times too when people think of trails like not all trails are bad right um a lot of our data we actually found that um there were still a lot of rare species that are present along the trails um so there wasn't like a specific distance um that we found rare species but um they still exist near trails yeah. so um as i mentioned before i guess that sort of idea of having a sustainable balance of right yes trails are there and yes they're good but also you know within reason <laughs> yeah it's a, a kind of a conundrum like when you're in sort of southern appalachia here in, in in southern southeastern united states old logging roads are sometimes the best area to find weird orchids there's just yeah. enough disturbance <laughs> but not so much and, and like right. that regrowth so it is this sort of conundrum and it's a hard thing i would imagine as a scientist to try to communicate because everyone wants to take the easy hook from your work and go Trails are bad, <laughs> but here's a exactly, great yeah. nuanced discussion about, okay, there is levels of this. And when you think about what your work eventually goes on to influence, it is that sustainable at attribute because we need people out there. We need people using these parks in a variety of ways or else they don't exist. You don't exist uh, in a park situation without people to enjoy said park. That's right. Yeah. And so is it difficult sometimes as like someone who's very naturalistic minded, someone who cares about the botany to try to, within your own world, suss out those biases as you're finding the data is telling the story for you? I mean, I came up against it. And I'm sure many people that have done science listening today have come up against that. But were you taken to task by your data in some ways? <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely. Yeah, I guess it was. Uh, an interesting journey to definitely take for sure. Um, and so I found myself even just going on uh, casual hikes with friends, you know, like trying to stay on the trail, but, you know, <laughs> use the boot brushes. And <laughs> um, but yeah, it was definitely um, an interesting. Sorry, I'm not sure how to answer. That. No, no, that's <laughs> Your reaction to it's your reaction to it, right? But you mentioned those boot brushes, and that's a great point to bring up because mm. I'm starting to see more and more of those at trailheads. I understand how they can work for boots. I mean, did you see, or was this even part of your work that, that those do have a positive effect, or is it kind of like we install them and then we feel good and we can walk away? Or is it more about just bringing awareness to the problem? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, so currently in Castle right now, they don't have any established, okay. um, but they do have a lot in Waterton Lakes National Park, so just south of us. Oh. Um, so I can see it being a potential um, a potential tool um, to be introduced into this new park. And but um, from what I've seen, and you know, based on other parks that do use them, um, even if it is just having those signs and having those boot mm. brushes there to bring that awareness, I think is is beneficial in um, in terms of conserving these plants and reducing the exotics that are out there for sure yeah yeah i've always kind of visioned them as like a kind of a fun interactive awareness campaign where at the very least you get people thinking about it and maybe be like oh i should probably clean my boots the next time i'm out here <laughs> yeah or you get you know you're in a group of people where the first person to start on the trailhead yeah they use the boot brush and so you know everyone else follow suit <laughs> Oh, mob mentality. It can work in good yeah. and bad ways. <laughs> um, but from like the OTV or just any sort of off-road vehicle perspective, I mean, I know plenty of people that that is just squarely in the bad camp. But again, if I, you grew up in the country like I did, it's something you're exposed to. You can't think it's all, it, it's not all bad. And and so what, what did you see when you start to compare? I mean, you kind of hinted at it a little bit in terms of the size of the trail, but like are off-road vehicle trails inherently 
worse than foot traffic trails or is it again just the way in which we manage and approach them and create them yeah i definitely think it's just the way in uh the approach that we uh take to manage them for sure um of course they're good in the sense you know to be able to go and explore and and uh see these viewscapes or see these beautiful landscapes that they can get you to um but also within reason i guess in the sense that the more traffic that you have on there, the more potential there is for that um, sort of detrimental effect yeah. to, ha- to happen. So so in like putting together the sort of literature review for this process and, and really trying to shape your ideas, I mean, did you come across anyone that's really looked at like solutions to some of this? I know the boot brushes work for hiking boots, but is there an equivalent for off-road vehicle tires? I mean, boat campaigns. There's tons of boat campaigns about not spreading invasive species. Is there any equivalent for off-road vehicles that you're aware of? I mean, I have seen, um, I haven't seen anything in Alberta. Um, So there, and there may be, um, but I definitely have seen some campaigns um, for OHV, you know, like washing down your OHV um, before you go onto the trails. I've seen a lot of that. Um, Definitely in the States. I I haven't seen any personally here in Alberta, but something like that even um, could help prevent that especially when you're going up to these high elevations and montane ecosystems. Yeah, I'd imagine, you know, a lot of those people, again, aren't antagonistic to the idea. It's about the approach and the pitch, mm-hmm. right? How, how do you address mm-hmm. this? You don't point fingers and say, no, you're wrong, you're bad, get out of here. It's, it's how do we work towards that sustainable use? Because sustainable should mean a lot more people get to use it for less of an impact. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so when you walk away from this project, you know, I don't know where exactly you're at in terms of depositing, defending, uh, all that fun stuff, but, you know, do you feel like you have at least a base of sort of how you would approach management options moving into the future, at least for Castle, let alone other areas where that might be confronting this? Cause I'm sure, no, I'm positive. You are not alone <laughs> in dealing with these issues. Um, yeah, I guess it becomes a bit of a problem, especially when, you know, you consider, the different parties that are involved uh, when it comes to protected areas. And um, so we've had a lot of, I guess, hiccups um, <laughs> in terms of Alberta's protected areas. Um, more recently, having some of our protected parks be um, sort of managed by a different ministry. And so a lot of these times you can have, you know, protected areas fall into the hands of people that are maybe more interested in the tourism or the forestry aspect mm. of things. Um, so that becomes a, a bit of a, an issue to, to, to manage. Right. Right. But I think this kind of comes back to this idea of, of the pitch and the approach of how we talk about these subjects moving forward, because you, you almost need to guard yourself as, as we've learned in recent years uh, against how quickly things can change things you take for granted, such as legal protections and stuff like that can go away, especially in, in the case of political, socio-political world. Um, and so it, it, it almost feels like the way you talk about these results almost matters more than sort of the management recommendations, because if you approach it in a way that's digestible and at least approachable for the people that might be, quote unquote, the worst offenders, they might be more conducive to listen. And at least if that opens up now, suddenly a whole area is open to off-road vehicle traffic gosh, if we could get just like half of them to listen, that would be a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oof, you got your work cut out for you. <laughs> <laughs>
So moving forward from this, when you think about where you're at as a scientist and where you want to go with your career, I mean, is this something you want to kind of stay involved with? Do you feel you're better suited to make better recommendations or do you want to better understand just the multitude of ways we can impact natural systems, especially plant communities? Yeah, for sure. I definitely think it it involves a lot of an, you know, that interdisciplinary approach mm. to things. Um, you can't just have botany botanists or ecologists go out there and be like no <laughs> you know these trails are bad you also have to have those trail management you have to have you know the other parties that are involved the private parties that you know they have housing out there and um, everybody involved to to be able to sort of i guess work towards that more sustainable goal of providing an area of enjoyable recreation, but also providing an area of, of um, you know, natural plant conservation. Hmm. It almost sounds like antagonistic tribalism isn't the best way to succeed for <laughs> literally anything we do as a species. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it because, you know, work like yours is really couched at, at the community level and understanding what really supports biodiversity plants. But at the same time, the amount of things you can learn from work like yours, the amount of takeaways we can have to apply to other systems, you know, you're unique where you're at, but other places are dealing with similar issues in different systems, right? And so this this sort of model for moving forward, the inter interdisciplinary collaborative approach, getting as many stakeholders mm -hmm. in the room, it, it's painful, it sucks, not everyone's cut out to do that, but work like yours can really inform that moving forward. And that to me is the most exciting part because... It doesn't make sense for us to love something to death. We need to love it and keep it at some state into the future, right? That sustainability Definitely, is yeah. that underline there. <laughs> and so for yeah, people yeah, for sure. that want to keep track of what you're doing, keep a pulse on this work or, or maybe work that you're going to be doing in the coming years, where do you recommend they go looking? Uh, they can definitely check out um, my supervisor's webpage. So uh, Dr. Jay McCune has a Weebly webpage, um, so you can check out some of the work that McCune Lab is doing. Um, I guess I also recommend checking out, you know, come check out the herbarium at the U of L. I guess I didn't really speak a lot towards that, but that's where a lot of my uh, my passion and interest in herbaria work as well kind of came from, is the University of Lethbridge Herbaria Excellent. with Dr. Bain. And so we're always looking for volunteers out there. Um, Another thing would be um, Alberta Wilderness Association, their webpage as well. AWA has on their webpage a way to sort of reach out to legislation. And so oh, they nice. have this letter of concern um, that you can send to the Minister of Forestry and Parks and Tourism um, to be able to sort of, I guess, put your word into this idea of, of protecting our, our parks and, and maintaining their integrity. That's excellent. I love actionable items, especially ones that are informed by good science. And so, again, getting those conversations in the minds of people that might not be thinking about them in the right way uh, <laughs> can can truly make a difference. So thank you for that. And I appreciate the links. Yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to add all of those. But Trini, this is incredible. Thank you so much for doing the work, for understanding it in a nuanced way and for talking to us about it today. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt, for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Well, keep it up, and I, I look forward to whatever you end up doing in the future. Keep up with the great work. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. 
All right. Great work. Really important work. I thank Trini for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And I wish her all the best as she moves forward from her master's degree. She's got a really bright future studying these sorts of things. And it is so great to see a new generation of scientists really considering interdisciplinary collaborative approaches to doing better for our natural areas. All of the relevant links for everything we talked about can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. So go check that out. You can also find ways to support the show for instance, by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. It's the only way I can make the show work. Please consider supporting it today. You can also pick up some of our customizable merch and stickers. And of course, my book is 30% off over at mango.bz until the end of January 2023. So go check that out as well. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.